Hey everybody, it is Vin again, and it's Glenn, and I'm here with Marie. Hello! And we have quite a subject for you today. How oh, many indeed. of you like are hobbyists and perhaps have tools lying around the house like saws? And maybe you like to sew. I know Marie likes to sew. I do like to sew. Is there any way we can combine these hobbies into something that's a historical topic? I don't know. Maybe Civil War medicine? That's a great idea, Marie. Let's talk about that. You know, going into that, I have just introduced it with the common cliches of Civil War medicine. Everything was an amputation. All the soldiers who were ever wounded got a saw taken to their arms or their legs. And it was unnecessary and it was horrific and the end for Civil War medicine. But it's a lot more complicated than that, isn't Not it? Not completely true, all the, <laughs> some of those generalizations you said, so we're going to unpack those. So let's, let's start with the state of medicine, let's say in 1860 when the war starts. And there's a couple of important things to remember. It is, it is not the medieval period. This is, they, they're sort of past the idea of, of humors and, and trying to balance things like that. And, and bleeding has more or less 100% gone out of style. But we are still in a pre-germ theory time. So the general theories of medicine are that the body is a system, which it is, and that there are things that affect the system overall that can be modified within the body. There's diet, there's temperature, there's some psychological issues, you know, the, the depressed, happy, sad, things like that. But it's before germs. They don't know what germs are. They know the effects of germs because they see them when people get sick, when infections start, inflammation as they call it, a, a purulent in, uh, inflammation. But they don't know why that happens. So this is very much a pre germ theory era, which kind of gets us to where we're at with a lot of the things we would consider horrific today. And I know Marie, who has studied the role of Civil War nurses and can kind of tell you what their practices on the day-to-day -day front lines, not only of a post-battle hospital and medical setup, but also just the day-to-day -day medical stuff that's going to be going on with an army. Yeah, so you, Civil War medicine is so interesting and especially to the history of nurses because this is the first time the U.S. government ever paid female nurses for their services. Yay! Yay! So the, it all starts out with Florence Nightingale who is a British nurse in the Crimea War. She had nothing to do with the American Civil War really except for that her influence and in her nurses drew such acclaim for making the lives of soldiers better and having a higher healing rate and lessening, lessening the death rate of soldiers under their care that female nurses became more accepted and put to use her practices. So her Florence Nightingale had this fantastic idea that if you have fresh air and if you aren't sitting in your own filth and you have proper nutrition, you get better more likely than die. Wow. I know, right? That's impossible to consider. <laughs> So that that was the tenets of Florence Nightingale was let's get these windows open because for some reason they thought it was better if you're not if you're in like a stuffy closed off non sunlit room they thought you were that was better for healing which is not really true it's better if you have you know some fresh air and some sunshine so she she opened the windows she cleaned up the wards and attempted to have proper nutrition her rates of survival went through the roof and people 
began to respect the idea of female nurses. She opened up a college of nursing a little bit later, but all of this was right before the American Civil War. So, of course, following Britain's lead and this really celebrity status that Florence Nightingale had, America starts its nursing corps. And, and just to clarify, the, the Crimean War was the early 1850s. Yes. And so you're talking less than a decade before the start of the American Civil War. Yes, yes, just to, for, for, to establish our timeline. Right. So we have the nursing corps in the United States, and that's basically only in the North. And then the South also has nurses, but it's much more of a homegrown effort of groups of women getting together and going to a battlefield or a battle happening in their front yard and then going to tend to the wounded. Much less training, more on the jobs, hands-on learning. In the North, you have Dorothea Dix, who is over pretty much all of the nursing corps. They called her Dragon Dix because she was so tenacious. She had very strict ideas as to who could be a nurse. You had to be over 30, you had to be married, and you had to be homely looking. Now, what were her reasons for those? I mean, those, those are rules, but why does she say that that's what makes a good nurse? Because she didn't want any fraternizing between <laughs> the nurses and the soldiers. It's that simple, right? <laughs> I mean, because, because usually the women who had been with armies before, that had been an issue that was not only a morale issue, but it could lead to diseases of love, as they called them, <laughs> amongst the army, and... And that's an important thing. We'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later about that sort of thing in the Civil War. But but these nurses are certainly going to, they've professionalized something that was at best an amateur approach before. And mm-hmm. thanks to, as, as my wife, the nurse calls her, Flo, thanks to Flo, <laughs> this had professionalized the idea of women. And, and you're right, the Crimean War was this, when people at home in Britain read about it and they learned about it, there was nothing good. It was a horrible campaign. The misery amongst men and officers was beyond compare. The disease was rampant. The food was horrible. And it's like the one bright shining thing that came out of it was Florence Nightingale and her efforts of women specifically that did these things that we take as basic today, but that transferred to the American, at least the United States armies during the American Civil War. A lot of times these women weren't necessarily on the front lines of the battlefields, especially in the north. They were sent to larger established hospitals or established, uh, quote unquote established. They were, you know, taking over hospitals. Uh, Hospitals weren't necessarily a thing like we think of today. They weren't these large buildings. So they sometimes took over hotels, other large large buildings uh, that were the quote unquote established hospitals and that these women were then sent to to take care of the soldiers. Some of their day-to-day duties might be making sure the soldiers get their food. They're bathing the soldiers, making sure that there's an atmosphere of cleanliness going on, uh, rolling bandages, changing bandages. Sometimes they might assist in surgery, but that was not really the... That's generally still the domain of, of, of men, men. Of, of surgeons and their male orderlies. Of course, in during the Civil War, we have one of the first female surgeons in the United States Army, Dr. Mary Walker, who I found out when I was trying to Google myself one day. <laughs> Because her name's very close to mine. But she's a fantastic, interesting person. She was the first and so far only woman to be awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for her service during the Civil War for the Union Army. She was captured at one point and then uh, released. She liked to wear suits like a man. Uh, or reform dresses to perform her surgeries in. And so so that's another kind of breakthrough for women in medicine and the United States Army during the Civil War. 
And, you know, not to belabor this because it is the subject of many more, but it seems that, especially in times of war, the U.S. military has always been a machine for social change because they're trying to get wars won and they're trying to find new ways to make it more efficient, to make it more effective, not just the, the battlefield stuff, but the administration and the organization. And that certainly plays, as you say, into, into you know, Surgeon Walker and this recruitment on large numbers of women to come in and do the work. And so, again, you know, those nurses are helping out and we're looking at surgeons who are performing these, what we imagine are, and certainly are, horrific battlefield operations. And and here's the reason why. It's not that surgeons were amputation crazy. There wasn't some sort of thing that they signed in medical school that said, you must saw off as many arms and legs as possible. The technology of the time, the, the lead mini ball that these rifles fired, would hit bone. And it would, they're, they're big, they're slow moving, they have a lot of force, and they would literally shatter the bone for two to three inches up and down, which means there was no bone. Now, the medical practice and technology at the time could reconstruct those bones, but that was something that literally took hours and hours for a surgeon operating on one person. When you have tens of thousands of casualties, you don't have that luxury. So the quick and easy way to do that was to simply saw through the limb, right? And so it seems horrific, and it happened to a lot of men north and south, but when you start looking at the statistics, the bottom line is people who had amputations statistically tended to make it. They, they didn't have an arm or a leg, but the success rate, the, the recovery rate from a successful amputation was pretty high. It was way higher than those who did not receive amputations or who let gangrene set into a wounded limb, right? So this idea of saw-happy doctors is is not the case. It was actually the forefront of, of medical. And of course, you know, they used anesthesia too. Anesthesia had only come about in the in the 1840s widespread. And depending on which story you hear, uh, anesthesia started here in Georgia with Dr. Crawford Long. And there's some Massachusetts dudes who think <laughs> that it was up there, but that is not the case. So the soldiers are going to be brought from the battlefield directly to this field hospital where they're going to receive treatment for their wounds, whether it's a head wound, whether it's an amputation. And from there, they're going to be put in wagons, called ambulances actually, and taken to the, the hospitals, Marie, that you're talking about, where, yes. the, where the nurses are going to be providing that long-term care for, for recovery. Mm -hmm. Now, medicine, like the actual like chemical approach to medicine, is also advanced. So they're getting... You know, they're not using ether. They're probably using chloroform, mostly because it's much less flammable than ether. And, you know, barrels of ether tend to explode. And you don't want that in a medical facility. So they use chloroform. Uh, but there's lots of other medicines, too. And you've studied some of the, the herbal approaches as well as some of the actual, quote, patent medicine. So what kind of medicines are the doctors or the nurses going to be giving the soldiers when they're either close to the battlefield or in recovery? Well, that depends on if you're in North or South, because if you're South, you're blockaded in. You can't get medicine. So you're probably going to be resorting to herbal medicine that you can grow and get in your own yard. Or corn liquor. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> um, some, there there's a whole host of very interesting uh, medical practices and treatments, some of which involve, uh, well, whiskey and different alcoholic beverages uh, mixed with some interesting things, sometimes like arsenic or mercury. Mercury was very popular Opium. to drink certain things. <laughs> Opium. 
Yes. Uh, lots of opioids. Well, that was the main painkiller, wasn't it? They would take. Oh, yeah. They would take. I don't know how they got the opium, but they would roll it into pills, and pe- that's pill popper. You know, that's where it came from. People would start taking these pills, and so many people at, from who were winning the Civil War got addicted to opiates. Yep. Opioids. I'm not sure which is the right word. Opium-based medicine. So we've talked about the battlefield wounds and the and the amputations and things, but but there was a lot more to the work of Civil War medicine than just the battlefield stuff. That was the crisis moment. That was the the horrific part that could last for days. But but the nurses and especially the surgeons and orderlies are still going to have a lot of things they have to do. So a common part of any peacetime or wartime army is in the morning when roll is called, people are going to report for sick duty. And for example, during the Civil War of the again, depending upon how you count it, anywhere from 650 to 800,000 deaths occurred. Over half of those occurred from disease. Mm-hmm. Tuberculosis, typhoid, dysentery, camp diseases, things like that. So the doctors are also having to deal with all these, well, these, these camp diseases, the things that, that affect people's digestive system, that give them headaches, that give them fevers, and they're trying to treat those to keep those men in fighting trim so they can be soldiers. But with so many people, this is sort of a pandemic lesson, right? With all these people coming from home for the first time into huge bodies of men that have never been put together in that larger bodies before, disease is going to be rampant, especially in the early parts of the war. And they're always having to treat that. And then as the war goes on, of course, there's a lot of things they're having to treat that um, anything from, you know, diarrhea from bad food, starvation from not enough food, to venereal diseases, right? Venereal diseases are incredibly common. And there's a great book. I can't remember the name of the author, but it's called The Stories the Soldiers Wouldn't Tell. Have you read this? I have not. <laughs> it's The Stories the Soldiers Wouldn't Tell. And it talks about how frequent the, the rates of prostitution were and how much you were talking about you know, using mercury. That was a very common treatment for, for syphilis and things like that. And and they just couldn't keep enough of it because they were having to treat so many soldiers for that sort of thing. Uh, don't we have the Civil War to thank for the term hooker? We sort of do. You know, I don't, I think that, I don't know if that's apocryphal or not. But yeah, so you do you know the story? Yeah. Tell the story. So we have a general hooker. Joseph who, E. Joseph E. Hooker, who was um, perhaps well-known for having prostitution within his camp. And therefore, these prostitutes were known as hooker's girls because these they, they were prostitutes in general hooker's camps and therefore the term got shortened therefore just to hooker to hookers he was very popular with the men yes but there's there that's just it there's so much about you know there's so many aspects to the american civil war that people don't think about so that's why we wanted to talk just a little bit about the medicine to sort of bust up some of those myths of that amputation was silly and crazy and how could they do that sort of thing well I actually saved tens of thousands of lives and it was the absolute height of of medical practice at the time and it was a great time for the advancement of women as professionals real professionals not hookers professionals so civil war medicine there's lots of the the growth of uh, and and you know germ theory comes out just a little bit after this so it's really the last big hurrah that comes from a a pre-germ theory world and moving forward they begin to treat infections a lot differently. They begin to look at amputations a lot differently. And it trained an entire generation or two 
of medical professionals who then went on to, of course, practice in their local towns, but also went to teach these methods at the universities and the, and the medical schools around the country sort of carry that diagnostic and treatment approach on that they learned in the very, very practical front lines of the Civil War. War also has a tendency to also further medical advancement and yeah. medical research because you have such a large amount of casualties right. so yeah. fast that, and, and you see so much so fast and you have to figure out, well, what are we going to do here? And you start to see cause and effect uh, and I think during the Civil War, they started to, they didn't understand why things were happening, but they saw things happening, and, and then they began to question what is the cause And they found ways to prevent this. it, even if they didn't know the microbial. Exactly. Yeah, the microbial things. That's it this time on Then Again. So until we talk to you next time, uh, don't saw off any legs. Bye. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. If you've enjoyed listening to Then Again, please give us a review and make sure to subscribe. Follow our YouTube channel and Facebook page for free weekly live streams on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern and special members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Digital memberships to the Northeast Georgia History Center are as low as $3 a month or $35 a year, and that gives you access to special members only live streams and content. You can always support us with a donation of your choice by going to www.negahc.org. Thanks. See you next time.